Father, <clears throat> we, we mimic this great prayer in our hearts, in our minds, Lord. We, we echo the thoughts of Nehemiah. We ask now just for your, your spirit to open our eyes, open our hearts uh, to your word, to the preaching of your word. May we walk away as a changed people from this today. Lord, help us now. We need you. All these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, I just completed my, my Old Testament class in, in seminary, uh, and so many things are, are somewhat fresh to me as I'm studying through the text of Nehemiah. I mean, I mean, it's interesting to point out that if you were to, to read the Old Testament, I mean, straight through, you know, if you have the time, a period of, you know, you could read it in a couple days, but in a period of seven to eight weeks, you, you see this reoccurring theme uh, about God's redemptive plan for his people. Additionally, you begin to see what, what I like to call puzzle pieces, um, which perfectly connect together, right, and and the Bible just lays that out. So every time I'm reading something, I just, I'm collecting these puzzle pieces. And I'm just putting it together. And so what happens is you see just the overall theme of the Bible, the overall theme of Nehemiah. And you see God's covenants connect along, along with various people throughout the Old Testament. And so before I head into our text this morning... I want to make sure that, that we're connecting the pieces together um, with the first couple verses in Nehemiah. Uh, it may be brief, but, but my prayer is that we, we think through and connect what we're currently studying together as a church, maybe along with our, with our personal study. I know right now uh, the McShane reading plan, we're, we're reading through De- De- Deuteronomy. And so just thinking through, through De- Deuteronomy and, and reading Nehemiah is like, okay, there's a great connection there. And so I really just want to follow up with Rod's sermon last week. I mean, he gave us the introduction. He gave us the background. But just to give us a little bit more background, again, on verses 1 to 3. So if you look, there are some minor things I want to touch on with the background. In the first couple of verses, again, there's some interesting things to point out. First, we read about the location in Susa. Okay? That was during... Uh, this time that, that Nehemiah was serving in Susa, where the Persian Empire was located. <clears throat> they say that this was the, the winter gathering, a winter resort of some kind for the Persian kings. Uh, this took place, or this particular place actually can be found also in the book of Esther as, as a main setting. If you read chapter 1, that's where the main setting is in Esther. Additionally, if you read through Daniel, in Daniel chapter 8, we find that through Daniel's interpretation, we see the vision of um, Belshazzar's dream. And again, that's Daniel chapter 8. So that, that's the location. Again, again I'm just going to run right through this. Um, second, we find really is, are the kings. And Pastor Rod touched on the kings last week. There's a variety of kings that we know of. Right? I'm not going to name them all, but I, I, I named four, four particular ones. And we know of Nebuchadnezzar who, who conquered Jerusalem, right? He deported its population, right? <clears throat> this is not the destruction uh, that Nehemiah heard of, just a side note. 
And so just please keep that in mind. And then we have, uh, as I mentioned previously, Belshazzar uh, replaced Nebuchadnezzar as ruler of Babylon. Again, that could be found in the book of Daniel. Third, we find Cyrus. And Cyrus is the one who actually overthrows Belshazzar, and, and the fall of Babylon fell under his watch. And so the Persians, really, the Persian king, King Cyrus, wanted to rule the world. I mean, the Persians wanted to rule the world. Yet, here's the interesting thing that we find, okay? Uh, through God's softening of Cyrus's heart, we find that Cyrus shows compassion to the Jews because he wanted favor with God, so, so he allows the Jews to rebuild the temple. Let me read for you in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. And then we find in Second Chronicles, in the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, this is the introduction. It's really found in Second Chronicles. Okay, we find King Cyrus' decree. So if you turn your Bibles to Second Chronicles, uh, the last chapter, chapter 36, okay, this sets up Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and it's the king's decree, King Cyrus's decree. Second Chronicles 36, starting with, with verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Then we find, of course, the king, the second king here in Artaxerxes, King Artaxerxes. And he also, he's, he's also found in, in Ezra, but he's also found here in our text. And, and Ed will go through it next week um, in Nehemiah chapter 2. But we read he, in Ezra 4 that there's these, this, these guys um, that were stirring up some trouble, right? There was, it was Ram and, and Shimshay. And, and in Ezra 4, verse 23 and 24, and let me read that for you, Ezra 4. Okay, this is, this, these are the guys, and this is um, King Artaxerxes reading this letter. Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Chimshai, the scribe, and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So between Ezra and Nehemiah, we find about 13 years where the wall was rebuilt and reforms took place. Again, as Pastor Rod mentioned last week. Now, let me get to our third sort of point here in the background. That's the status. And so I'm kind of working backwards there from Nehemiah 1.11c. Okay, when I say status, I really mean Nehemiah's position in the story. Nehemiah's position in the story. And it reads, now I was a cupbearer to the king. Now the cupbearer in, in this, during this time was really a, a position or the status of a place of great trust. 
right? It was, it was with great honor and profit that he was a cupbearer. So this was, he wasn't just, you know, um, drinking something for the king so to protect the king, right? This title was really considered a, a high position. I mean, he was always in the king's ear. He was around the great leaders. He was there right next to the king. Okay, if, you, if we could relate this position uh, to today's age, it would be as if he was a, the chief of staff. Therefore, this was, was no meager position. And so we find, again, this Old, text, this Old Testament connection, just like other Jews before Nehemiah, we find, for example, like Daniel and his friends, right, who, who rose to great positions alongside the king, like Esther through Mordecai, be, becoming the queen of Persia. So we find that, that really through God's providence, people who were born in exile rose to honorable positions. And so again, just want to fill this as the background. I'm going to come back to it um, throughout our text. But this takes us to, to verse 3. And verse 3 uh, really states, states the problem in our text today. Verse 3. You know, as a second generation uh, Filipino-American, when disaster strikes the Philippines, I usually pay careful attention to what's going on. Back in 2013, Typhoon Haiyan, known as Super Typhoon Yolanda, struck the Philippines. And it was the strongest cyclone that, ever, that was ever recorded. It killed about 6,300 people. Months later, bodies were still being found. They estimated 1.9 million were left homeless and more than 6 million displaced. You know, my, my parents, who, who were born and raised in the Philippines, they were, they were so, somewhat frantic. They were calling their relatives or calling their friends, making sure everything was, was okay. I mean, my thoughts at the time were, you know, as an American, still my heart goes out first to my family, some of my family members who are still living over there, um, but also because there's a deep-rooted ancestry in, in my life through my family. And so you see all these Filipinos just kind of rallying around making sure that they're okay. I mean, if you look around us today, we find that all of us really come from different backgrounds, different nationalities. Um, some of us even come from another country. And this, this beauty of, of Gateway is that we're, we're really a melting pot of God's people. Therefore, some of us could relate to when a catastrophe hits us. You know, whether it's in the next city whether it's in another state or another country, it grabs our attention as a community of believers. So I tell you this because I want to I be sure here. I want to make sure that at the very least that we come face-to-face -face with Nehemiah and understand what he's about to hear. Okay, at the very least that we come face-to-face -face with this text through Nehemiah and we understand what he's about to hear. As I mentioned, we, again, we find the problem stated here in verse 3. Yet through this, God's plan unfolds. So this morning, my aim is this. My aim is this. God calls his people to remember his word through prayer in light of broken circumstances. God calls his people to remember his word 
through prayer, in light of broken circumstances. And so this, this transitions us to our, to our first point this morning where we find Nehemiah's concern for his people. Nehemiah's concern for his people. After inquiring about his peop- people, Nehemiah received the most devastating news he could ever hear. And upon hearing this, we can only assume the helplessness that Nehemiah was going through. Verse 3, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. The first part of our text helps us to see who were the people. Who were the people? And the people there, they're in the province who had survived the exile. That's really the, the remnant. They were the people who returned from captivity, people in Judah. Again, who were in, who were in exile. As Pod, Pastor Rod um, mentioned last week, they were the last or, or the third return of, the, of Jews from exile in Babylon. So if you think about it, what was going through his mind, he, I mean, Nehemiah lived far away from his people. However, it's been said that some of his family members were also living in Judah. Think about the groups of families, some poor, some uneducated, unskilled, women, children, elderly. That's the remnant. I mean, from generation to generation, God has carried them, but now they're in trouble. And Nehemiah is hearing this. And so we find the news here that Nehemiah receives about his people. Second, we find the devastation. The devastation. <clears throat> Again, some say the, the devastation means or meant marks of, of poverty and slavery. And was also very dangerous as it became easy prey for enemies who might want to attack them. I don't have to describe it because the, the text describes it for us. I mean, look at your text. It says, trouble and shame, broken down walls, gates on fire. This would be a reminder of the humiliation that Nehemiah's people were subjected to under their captors. I mean, can you imagine hearing news like this? Maybe we have personally, right? But here's, here's the thing. When disaster strikes and people are harmed, we as Christians do not turn a blind eye. Have you ever thought about why Christians or or Christian organizations are the first to respond when disaster strikes? When the poor, the orphans, the widows are subjected to utmost suffering, we find that the first responders are usually Christians. There's always a great concern amongst Christians. There should be. It's never by accident. Look, I'm not trying to arouse an agenda right now for us to do something, but I'm simply reminding you that as Christians, like Nehemiah, we will hear news like this Maybe it could be a serious disaster that strikes our family, our friends, another country, or a community, just like we heard this morning. 
But here's the thing. We, we serve a God who, who is in control of all things, who cares for the people who are suffering, who cares for the people in need. And I'm not just saying that because, you know, that's, that's a Christian thing to say. I'm saying that because it's, it's, it's spread across through the whole Bible. It's different puzzle pieces where God is caring for the orphans, for the widows, for the poor. You know, back in February when we went to Ukraine, we, we were at an, an orphan house and a man by the name of Ivan, we heard his story of how he would just take in orphans just because he just had a heart to take in orphans. I mean, I was just sitting there. I was really in my mind. I was like, you know, I'm, I'm just crying just out of joy and just saying, man, how can this one man care for orphans? And I thought, you know what, that's, that's, that's God's compassion being fleshed out through him the same way that God's compassion is shown to us. And so Nehemiah, we, we just, we see that. And we're, we're going to see that as, as we go along, which takes us again to our next point, our second point this morning. We find Nehemiah's reaction. We find his compassion. We've, right now we find his, Nehemiah's conviction before God. Nehemiah's conviction before God. Reading, as, I soon, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You know, one word came to mind as I was studying this particular verse, and the word was lament, which means a passionate expression of grief and sorrow. If you read your Bible, it's all, I mean, there's, there's a book on lamentations, on lament, when Jeremiah was lamenting. And so in our text today, it says he was continually weeping, as it indicates it was for days. Now, don't get me wrong here when I say conviction. This is not a guilty conviction. What I'm really coming across this morning for, for us is a deep care for his people, a compassion, which leads to a deep conviction. You know, this, this verse... I, I was questioning this verse in the sense of why was it here? Why was verse 4 here? Why couldn't he just go to the prayer? And here's the conclusion that I came up with. We needed to see Nehemiah's heart in the face of sorrow. We needed to see Nehemiah's heart in the face of sorrow. We really need, I want to be careful when I say feelings, and we all know in this church, but we I. We need to feel and understand Nehemiah with this verse. One way to see this text, uh, as some have mentioned, is that it's really prescriptive rather than descriptive. It's prescriptive rather than descriptive, meaning rather than the text telling us something, it's preparing us to see the real Nehemiah. One One person put it this way, we are to feel and be bothered like Nehemiah. We are to feel and be bothered like Nehemiah. Why is that? This is not only a family that was affected, but a deep religious and personal relationship with the people of God. That's why he was affected. There is a deep deep religious and personal relationship with the people of God. 
You know, I, I think we've all experienced some type of sorrow in our life. I mean, if you haven't, you will. And I, I don't say that to, to be insensitive to, to your sorrows, but as a pastor, as an elder, our job is to prepare you really for sorrow, to prepare you for shame, to prepare you for lament. I mean, the church is a place where we can lament over the things of this world and have no shame. And through Nehemiah's conviction, we find here, first, his devotion. His devotion. We know that Nehemiah was a devoted Jew. But we find that in his devotion, he called out to the one thing he was ultimately devoted to, and that was God. All right? he, he, was, he was a cupbearer. He was an important man who sat under a king. He was a courageous man who was willing to sacrifice his own life for the sake of a king. He was a man who made sure that the king's life was never in danger. Yet, here in our text, we find a broken man broken down by the circumstances around him, humbling himself before the Almighty God. That's what led him to his devotion. Church, let me ask you, where, where is your devotion? You see, we find a person's devotion when placed in the most difficult circumstances. Whatever you're devoted to will come to light when you encounter dark times. Let me give you some examples. Maybe you're struggling, maybe physically. You do all that you can to get the best doctors, the medical personnel, and experts to help you. Those are all good things to do. God gives us wisdom to assess various situations, but we must remember who is in control. We must remember who is in control. Is your devotion toward man or is it toward God? We need to trust in Him in times of question, in times of, of assessing our needs physically. We need to trust in Him. Another example, maybe you're, you're struggling financially. Maybe you look into our retirement accounts or savings and compromise our devotion to God, the church, and our families to make sure that we're okay financially. Are you being challenged with your devotion to God financially? Thirdly, maybe we're struggling emotionally. I mean, when things hit rock bottom, where do you turn? Your spouse, your friends, your job? This could all be good things, but if it's an ultimate thing in your life, it shows what or whom you're devoted to. Church, I ask again, where is your devotion? Nehemiah's heart and devotion was to God. Second, we find in this verse, Nehemiah's action, Nehemiah's action, his action your devotion to God will lead you to a number of things. Here we find Nehemiah's action and what it entails. 
First, he says he wept and mourned. He wept and mourned. You know, going back to, to my culture, you know, I've, I've attended numerous funerals to understand the weeping and mourning of people. In our, cult, in, you know, in our culture, in the Filipino culture, a funeral, just like many funerals, is a somber experience, right? It's, it's especially sad when it's a non-Christian funeral or, or when there's an unexpected death. But one thing my wife and I always come away, we, we talk about, is just the crying. Because they're, they're, they're crying really loud, and they're weeping, and they're mourning. And it sticks with you. I mean, I could hear it right now. You could just, you could hear it. And I've heard numerous times where my aunties and my uncles are just weeping loudly, mourning for the lost. And that paints really a, a vivid picture of mourning and, and weeping here. And that's the expression found in Nehemiah. Do you see his heart yet, church? Do you see his heart? Weeping and mourning. It also says that he fasted and prayed. He fasted and prayed. You know, there are, there are many Old Testament examples where we read about fasting, just to name a few. 2 Samuel 12, which we'll be going through in the fall, where David fasts before his child with Bathsheba dies. It says that David fasted and wept. In Esther 4, we find the Jews fasting when faced with extermination. And in that text, it indicates that the Jews were, were weeping and wailing along with their fasting. Jonah Nineveh fasted when judgment was announced. And in Ezra 8.23, they were fasting and praying for protection, seeking guidance from God. Right? Ezra was fasting. Nehemiah. Fasting came when there is imminent judgment or even death. Let me quote a commentary here. Fasting was an outward expression of the inward reality of a shattered heart. It was an urgent response of repentance and great humility. It was a seeking of deliverance from a gracious God in profoundly desperate situations. Look, fasting in the Old Testament was really facing the reality of your sin or the reality of sin and yearning to repent and a need for total dependence on God. Let me say that again. Fasting in the Old Testament was facing the reality of sin a yearning to repent, and a need for total dependence on God. It really was a call for internal change, not external, internal change. That's why people would fast. Not only did Nehemiah fast, but he prayed, which I will talk more about later. But going back to verse 4, after hearing the news, again, we find Nehemiah's conviction. Friends, do you have a deep conviction for the people of God? Do you have a deep conviction for the people of God? You know, I heard a seminary president, President uh, Ligon Duncan, say this about seminary. He says, seminary is important for ministers because seminary shapes your heart. He goes on to say why. He says, people will not respond to the gospel. People will fall away who never believed in the gospel. You will see people you love and their marriages fall. You will bury people young and old. And he says this, seminary will shape your heart because 
Listen, your heart will be broken a thousand times in a thousand ways. Church, let me, let me allow you, let me allow, me allow me to say similar things along the same lines. You see, we're all called to be ministers of the gospel in our own context, whether to our families, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers. Yet we find in our ministering that people will never respond to the gospel. Brothers and sisters will fall time and time again. Communal life will be broken by sin. Death is inevitable, and we're all going to go through it. And some people closest to us will leave. Church, your heart will be broken a thousand times in a thousand ways. Your devotion to God, your devotion to the church will always be challenged. There are times where we will meet, weep and mourn over our people together. So the question is, will your conviction lead you to action? How will you respond? Will it be similar to Nehemiah's response? In our last point this morning, we see Nehemiah's response. After hearing about his people and seeing his concern, and after being convicted before God, we find Nehemiah's call to the Lord. Nehemiah's call to the Lord. Verses 3 and 4 really set this up perfectly. Right? I mean, Nehemiah's heart was just open for all of us to see. I mean, they say that this was his journal. Therefore, we find the, the most personal words from Nehemiah, especially through his prayer. If you read his prayer, it is similar to the ones found in Daniel, found in Ezra, and also throughout the Old Testament. There are four things I like to point out that we find in his prayer this morning. Four things. The first is his, his plea. His plea. Notice what, ne- what Nehemiah begins here, begins with here. He pleads, really, with the only one he knows that would take action on his behalf. He calls out to God. How does he call out to God? He acknowledges God's greatness first. He acknowledges God's greatness first, right? It's pure adoration. The God of heaven. The God of heaven represents Yahweh and his sovereignty. He knows all things, and only the God who knows all things knows the call of his own servant. He adores him as as the great and awesome God. Nehemiah is mindful of his power and majesty. Only a God with such power and majesty could answer Nehemiah. He also says here in in verse 5 that he's a covenant-keeping God. Covenant-keeping God. He's a faithful God. Steadfast love, as as, um, Rod mentioned last week, the Hebrew word, Hesed, love. That's really an expression of loyalty, his goodness, his grace. And that word, that description of Hesed is, is again, is scattered throughout the Old Testament. Those are the puzzle pieces. 
And we know that he's a God who stands by his word, his commandments. The humble posture of Nehemiah really refers to himself as, this is a humble posture of Nehemiah, and it refers to himself as a servant, right? He calls himself a servant. The cupbearer to a king, the one who's in high leadership, was a servant to the true king. Additionally, he calls all of, God, all of God's people, Israel, servants to Yahweh. Servants. They're all servants to Yahweh. We're all servants to Yahweh. So Nehemiah begins his prayer with a humble reminder of God's character. When we pray and acknowledge God, our posture toward Him is in reverence. And we cannot move forward unless we know that by Him and through Him, all things rest under the sovereign hand of God. This was the humble plea of Nehemiah. Second, we find the confession. The confession. Nehemiah knew that the sin of Israel caused the judgment of God, which resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem. He calls out his own sinfulness in addition to his family's. Right? No, not one sin would be left unconfessed in his prayer. Not one sin. So Nehemiah was really uniformed with his people by saying, we. I mean, he, he, was, he was born from exile, but he was also completely removed from Jerusalem. Right? He was in Susa, and, and he, he calls himself out. And we see the specifics here. I mean, the Israelites have acted corruptly. They did not keep the commandments, the statutes, or the law. They didn't keep the rules that Moses enforced. Look, acknowledging God's supremacy brings to light one's sinfulness. Once you acknowledge God's supremacy in all things, it brings to light your own sinfulness. And this is what it's doing. Right? The light shines over our dark hearts. The light found in God shines over our dark hearts. Next, we find Nehemiah's or the reminder in his prayer, the reminder. I found it to be a reminder more so for Nehemiah following his plea to God. All right, Nehemiah here in verses 8 through 10, he's summarizing the word he knew through the Pentateuch. Let me read to you what Nehemiah is referencing. If you could follow along, I'm just going to read through Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Let's connect the dots here. In Leviticus 26, verse 33, this is what it says. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. Jump over to Deuteronomy 4, verse 27. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And then fast forward to Deuteronomy 28, verse 64. Again, the words, and the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, 
which neither you nor your fathers have known. And in chapter 29 of Deuteronomy, verse 27, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against the land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land, and they are there this day. As they are this day. What's Nehemiah doing? At the height of his plea... Nehemiah is remembering the word of God from the Mosaic writings. He's being reminded of the covenant principle found in Deuteronomy. The conditional principle that obedience brings blessing and disobedience brings curses. That's Deuteronomy chapter 28 through 30. The blessings and curses. That's where Nehemiah is remembering the word. You see, Nehemiah alluded to Moses' warning that God would scatter Israel if they were unfaithful to the covenant. And we find in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 to 5, the summary of the promise through Moses that repentance brings restoration. Let me read that for you. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 to 5. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you." If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. From there he will take you, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. In the same way, Moses interceded for his sinful people. Nehemiah reminded God that they were his servants and his people whom he whom he had redeemed, and he did it through remembering the word. Nehemiah's humble posture to the Almighty God and confession of his sins and the sins of the Israelites brought him to the glory of the word of God, pleading for a second deliverance by the reminder of the word. He's remembering the word. Lastly, we find here is the petition. The petition. And we find the request after all these things, after adoring God, confessing in God, reminding God about the word, he, we find that he requests something for God. And he gets very specific here. And it relates to King Artaxerxes. If you remember when we read Ezra 4 in the beginning of the sermon where King Artaxerxes was swayed by these two men to stop the rebuilding of the walls and King Artaxerxes ordered the work to cease because of this letter, because of the commotion. So what happens? So in, his, in, his, in this petition, Nehemiah prays to God to accomplish the rebuilding of the walls once again. Here he is. He gets, again, very specific. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This man is Artaxerxes. And that carries over to chapter 2. Artaxerxes was just like any other king in those days, right? 
He was an important person who was, who was influenced, who was a mighty influence among the people with the worldly power that an earthly king has. Yet we know that Artaxerxes was just like any other man, and Nehemiah knew that. Look, it's never an earthly king that makes decisions apart from the sovereign hand of God. It's never an earthly, earthly king that makes decisions, decisions apart from the sovereign hand of God. In Proverbs 21.1, it says it best. Proverbs 21.1, it says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. It turns it wherever he will. Throughout history, God has stirred the hearts of kings. I mean, we all know this. Kings will come and kings will go. Leaders will have their time to rule throughout history. Presidents will come and go. But we know that God will ultimately establish his throne and he will never leave. God's hand is all over the history of the Bible, the history of the world, redeeming his people time and time again, and we need to take heart, church. No leader will ever do something apart from the sovereign hand of God. And Nehemiah is requesting that God will do something in the heart of King Artaxerxes. Nehemiah's prayer really is a model for us today. I mean, today we, we, we saw a man's heart with the news that he received about the remnant. We saw the conviction before the Lord only to conclude with the one thing he could do, the only thing he could do when, he faced, when faced with a dire situation, and that is turn to God. Church, are, are we turning to God in all situations of our lives? Are we taking our concerns, our convictions, and calling on the same God that Nehemiah called to? Look, we must be careful toward our feelings. I mean, again, we all know that all well as a church. But a deep, gospel-saturated feeling moves you to yearn for God and take action. A deep, gospel-saturated feeling moves you to yearn for God and take action. You see, Nehemiah left the safety of his position to do what called him to do to complete. In the same way, Jesus left the heavenly kingdom to do what God promised through the new covenant. You see, we, we find that through the, through the new covenant that God is faithful, has said, God is faithful to restore his troubled people. That's the theme. God is faithful to restore his troubled people. And that theme is carrying on through Nehemiah, through chapter 1. And Nehemiah was the leader to act first on God's promises, to act first by remembering the word. And we'll see this act unfold in the next couple months. The reminder here I have for the church, for you, it's quite simple. I mean, we are called to remember his word, to remember his truth, to remember his gospel, and we're called to remember it through our personal brokenness. We're all but broken apart. We're all but broken apart from the saving power of Christ. We're called to remember his word through our corporate brokenness. 
right? We are all challenged as we live communal life together. We are called to remember his word through the covenant promise, the promise of the glorious gospel. Church, in our brokenness, we must remember Jesus Christ. Let us pray this morning. Father, it's such a, a heavy, heavy passage in the sense of prayer, in the sense of brokenness. And Lord, I, I've merely touched the surface of your word. But as we go through this study of Nehemiah, is it important to remember that even though we are unfaithful, you will always be faithful. In the brokenness of our lives, in the brokenness throughout the church, in the brokenness of this world, your hand is upon it. You control every single detail. And so, Lord, let us draw to the conviction you have given us through the gospel of Jesus Christ to turn to you, to act and turn to you, to pray to you, to adore you, to confess our sins before you, Lord, as a church, and to thank you for your gospel. Lord, Lord, we pray that you will stir our hearts this morning, stir our hearts to be moved to act in whatever circumstance we're in. Be with us today. All these things we ask in Jesus' name, amen.